Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to today's Bible study. Uh, as always, we are, uh, or has, as we have been for the past few weeks, making our way through the book of First Peter, and we are today uh, in chapter two, verses eleven and twelve. The title of our lesson is "The Pilgrim Life." Now, let's go ahead first and and read our our, our passage, and then I want to come back and talk to you a little bit. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I want to be honest with you this morning. I've been teaching this class now for going on 14 years. And I can probably count on one hand the times that I've come into a lesson with mixed feelings. You know, normally I, I go and I do my work and I do my study, and and by the time I come into the class, I'm excited. Uh, I, I feel like I've got a good handle on the Scripture, and I, I'm ready to just jump in and, and, and teach the Word of God. But on the other hand, I'm also always got a good feeling that people are ready to hear what I've got to say. Now, today, to be honest, I've got mixed feelings about this lesson. And you may say, why? Well, it really has nothing to do with preparation. I've put in the preparation. I've put in the study. It's not that these uh, verses are, are hard to interpret or anything. In fact, I'm confident that I've got a, an incredible uh, and a wonderful message or lesson from the Word of God. On the other hand, I'm not as confident about the hearers. In other words, I'm not sure that what I've got to say today, that anybody really wants to hear it. You see, what I'm going to teach today is so far removed from our everyday Christian life that, to be honest with you, some people may hear what i got to say, and it may sound like uh, crazy talk. Now, it, it hasn't always been this way. In fact, our subject today, the pilgrim life, used to be a major theme among Christians. The best-selling book behind the Bible, I don't know if you know this or not, is a book called Pilgrim's Progress, which is uh, written by John Bunyan. By the way, John Bunyan wrote that book from a prison cell while he was serving a 12-year sentence for preaching the gospel. And the whole message, the whole topic of that book is the pilgrim life. But the fact is, today, this message, this topic, this issue, is it's just absent from Christian thinking. You're not going to hear very many sermons uh, taught or preached on this, or very many lessons taught on it. You're not going to uh, see very many books uh, written about it. And what are we talking about? We're talking about living, really living, as if we are just passing through this life. That we are sojourners, we are travelers, we are exiles, we are aliens. And we're just on a short journey across this earth and across this planet until we reach our true home, which is heaven. That's the pilgrim life. Not just something we we say, not just something we read about in the Bible, but something that we really and truly practice in our everyday life. Now, as I mentioned, to Christians in the past, 
this topic was standard fare. I, I, I grabbed an excerpt from a letter uh, from Jonathan Edwards. This is a letter that was written in 1753. It was written to his daughter Esther, who was seriously ill at the time. She lived a, a good ways away from him. And he wrote this letter to her. And I want you to read what he wrote with me. He said this, I would not have you think that any strange thing has happened to you in this affliction. It is according to the course of things in this world that after the world smiles, some great affliction soon comes. God has now given you early and seasonable warning, not at all to depend on worldly prosperity. Therefore, I would advise, if it pleases God to restore you, to count upon no happiness here. Labor while you live to serve God and do what good you can, being content to do and bear all that God calls you to in this wilderness, and never expect to find this world anything better than a wilderness. You are likely to spend the rest of your life, if you should get over this illness, at a great distance from your parents, but care not much for that. If you live near us, yet our breath and yours would soon go forth, and we should return to our dust where we are all hastening. It is of infinitely more importance to have the presence of a heavenly Father and to make progress towards a heavenly home. Let us all take care that we meet there at last. As I said, letter from Jonathan Edwards written in 1753. Now listen, if we're honest, that almost sounds like crazy talk to a modern Christian. Think about some of the things. Don't depend on worldly prosperity. Count upon no happiness here. Bear all that God calls you to. Never consider this world any more than a wilderness. I want you to, if, if I, if just a minute, just contrast that with this modern view of Christianity, which if we're really honest, is predominantly geared toward the here and now. How does this help me in my marriage? How does this help me be a better parent? How does this help me in my career? How does it help me overcome my personal problems? Modern Christianity tends to be all about the here and now. Heaven is, is, is thrown in as a nice benefit at the end of the ride, but let's be, I mean, again, it's not our focus. Most Christians want to enjoy life now and they want to cling to it as long as they possibly can. At his funeral, A.W. Tozer's daughter said this, He lived his entire life for this day. In other words, he lived his entire life with his death in view. That was what it was all about, the passing over, the entering into glory. Can the same be said of you and I? Do we see death as a gateway to everything we've been living for? Or do we see death as something to be avoided at all costs? Do we see ourselves as pilgrims? Or do we really see ourselves as citizens of this world? You see, a lot has changed between the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, and today when it comes to this view of the pilgrim life and, and the focus between heaven and earth. What, what happened? Well, several things happened, but one of the main things that has shifted our focus from heaven to earth is the advancement of modern medicine. Now, let me be extremely clear. I am thankful for modern medicine. I consider it a gift from, from God. The fact is, we are now able to recover from diseases, from injuries that a generation ago would have killed somebody. 
But we also have to be honest. At the same time, modern medicine has removed the stark reality of death that older generations used to face on a, on a daily basis. The Puritan theologian John Owen, who died in 1683, lost 10 of his 11 children before they ever reached adulthood. Even as late as 1900s, it was very rare to find a family in this country who hadn't lost at least one child to a premature death. And you see, when you live like that, when you live in, a, in an era where there is no penicillin, there's no cell phones to call if you've, if you've fallen off the horse, there's no uh, life flight to get you to the hospital, there's no emergency rooms, there's no none of that. You see, when you live in kind of that environment, you don't get attached to this life. You live much more consciously in light of heaven, in light of death. You see, it changes your mindset. Now listen, I understand that talk like this, some people might even consider it to be morbid, if you will. But in truth, it is absolutely biblical. The Bible calls us over and over, set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. Paul says, I believe it's in in Colossians. Peter is calling us today, you are aliens, you are strangers, you are exiles, you're just pilgrims here for just a little while heading toward your heavenly home. And you and I have got to adopt that mindset because that mindset constantly remembers Man, we're not here for long. We're just passing through. Our home is in heaven. See, we need that changes how we live. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of most people, or we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, I understand if you go back and read that in context, he's talking about what if there was no resurrection of the dead. I, I get that. But the fact is, listen, if that's your focus, then that is a pitiable form of of Christianity. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with enjoying life. There's nothing wrong with enjoying God's blessing. I'm not advocating that we go out and sell everything we we have and or anything like that. But listen to me. If you don't hold to the things of this life loosely, if you don't live a life where God is the absolute center of everything, if you aren't focused on heaven with Him as your goal, then I'm going to tell you, you're holding to a shallow form of Christianity. And and again, if I'm being honest this morning, this is the form of Christianity that's being practiced across America by many, many Christians. And let me tell you, eventually, eventually, this form of Christianity will show itself. You see, if, if our life on this earth is our focus and everything is about this life, you won't withstand persecution for one minute. If everything on this earth is about this life and, and, and enjoying the blessings and benefits here, you're not going to endure much suffering. And you're certainly not going to be able to endure the temptations that the enemy will bring against you. The only thing that can steal us against those things is a pilgrim mindset. 
And by the way, this is what is so desperately needed in this world. Not just in these times that we're living in right now, but every single day. A people for whom God is absolutely everything. You see, when Peter opens up this verse today, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11-12, he said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. See, he's saying, I urge you as with this mindset, remembering that you're just passing through, you're just here for a little bit on your way to your heavenly home. You see, he wants us to teach us something in these two verses. These verses are full of some incredible commands and some incredible theology. But it all begins with us having the mindset of a pilgrim. Now, I want to start going through these verses now, but I want to begin with the why. Why is it important that we live with the mindset of an alien or a traveler or somebody who's just passing through, what we call a pilgrim? Why is it important? Well, let's start here. You know, as I said earlier, I've been teaching this class for a long time, and I, I shouldn't say this anymore, but I am constantly astounded when I come to verses of the Bible, what's in those verses. You know, I, I, I'll take a verse and I'll read it, and the first I'll read right through it, and I think, okay, well, let's let's go figure it out, and let's go look at it, and let's go study it, and see what other uh, great theologians have to say about it. And the more you study, the more it comes alive, and the more you realize the deep, deep of the just the 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 the, the, the gravity, the deepness of these scriptures are astounding. I mean, it's really I I shouldn't even say it anymore. <laughs> But I do because I just can't quite get over how incredible uh, the Word of God is. Now, two simple verses, but these two simple verses bring up the two most important issues in the world. You see, what these verses make clear is there are two tremendously important issues that face us in this world. And by the way, I think these are the two most important. Above everything else that faces us in this world, these are the two most important issues. As a side note, this is one of the reasons you're going to see here in a minute that we know that we're aliens and strangers in the world. Because the world doesn't see these two issues as important whatsoever. In fact, if the world thought that these two issues were important, then everything would center around these issues. Newspapers would write articles about these issues. TVs would would make 2020 and Dateline specials about these issues. Um, t- uh, universities would be teaching classes and and have um, uh, studies on these two issues. Uh, industry mission statements, company mission statements, would all be about these issue, issues. Government goals would be about these issues. But we live in a world that shows by its priorities and its preoccupations that it doesn't see these issues as important as all. In fact, if the world put together a list of important things, these two issues wouldn't even make the list. You see, the two issues that dominate these two verses in in 1 Peter, and by the way, that dominate the whole New Testament are these. Number one, the salvation of the soul. And number two, the glory of God. Let's look at first how Peter brings out this issue of the salvation of the soul in verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles 
to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. See, the ultimate issue that's brought out of this verse, verse 11, is that the human soul is in danger of being destroyed. You see, there is a war being waged. And if that war is not won, the soul will be eternally lost. Jesus said this in Matthew 16:26. This is a scripture that's very familiar to us. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits or loses his own soul? Now, just for a minute, let's think about the import of that statement. You say, if the soul is lost, then the whole person is lost. And see, once the soul is lost, it's over. There is no option number two. There is no plan B. There is no way to negotiate to get that soul back. When the war against the soul is over, it's over. In Luke 16, 26, Jesus, uh, or, or, or excuse me, we got the story about Lazarus and the rich man. And, uh, and you all know the story, uh, Lazarus and the rich man, and, and Lazarus dies and goes to the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man dies, and, and he's in hell. And he, he, looks at, he, he looks up and he sees uh, Abraham, and he says, Abraham, please send Lazarus to me that he can dip his finger in the water and just for a moment cool my tongue, give me some kind of relief. And Abraham responds like this in the story. He says, I can't do that. For between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross. You see, when it's over, it's over. This is one of the great issues, one of the two great issues in the world. I mean, think about it. It's an issue that literally affects everybody. It's not a black issue or a white issue. It's not a male issue or a female issue or young versus old or rich versus poor. It literally affects every human being without exception. And it affects them eternally. It's not for a season of their life, but it affects them eternally. And yet the world could care less. The world could care less. They give no attention to it at all. Nobody's writing columns in the newspaper. I mean, think about it. Go to the internet today. Go pick up a newspaper and there's columns being written about COVID-19 and what the government does, what the government doesn't do, the economy. Not a word, not a word about the fate of the human soul. Newspapers aren't writing about it. There's no public service announcements being made on TV or the radio. There's no classes being taught in our schools. There's no government agency being created to put in charge of this. I mean, can we be honest? We're told how to wage war against AIDS. We're told how to wage war against mosquitoes. We're told how to wage war against high cholesterol. We're, we're told how to wage war against drunk driving and, and every other subject in the world. But when it comes to the most important issue that will ever affect us as human beings, the war against our soul, we just hear crickets. See, we are oblivious as a culture to the most dangerous thing that will ever face us as human beings. I don't know if you recognize this or not, but our modern modern world is massively preoccupied with the inconsequential. Is it any wonder that Peter begins this verse today the same way he did in 1 Peter 1.1 by calling us exiles, by calling us aliens 
and strangers. I said there were two great issues brought up in this, uh, these two verses here in 1 Peter. The first one, of course, is the war against the human soul. The second one is the glory of God, and we see that in verse 12. Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, what this verse says is absolutely incredible. What this verse is saying is the goal of human behavior is the glory of God. Now think about that for one moment. Whether or not our lives are significant, whether our lives make a difference in God's view, is derived from this one thing. Did your life point someone to the glory of God? Did your life direct people's attention to the glory of God? And by the way, the opposite is also true. If you live a life in such a way that it, your behavior, your conduct, your deeds do not point someone to the glory of God, then in fact your life is without significance from God's viewpoint or from a Christian standpoint. In other words, you've lived a life where you fit into the world so well that you didn't point anybody beyond the world. You were not an alien and a stranger. You were just simply a conforming citizen of a God-ignoring and God-denying culture. You see, this is what's at stake. When Peter calls us to live as aliens and strangers, this is what's at stake, the human soul and the glory of God. I mean, the stakes are as high as they can possibly be. And that is why we are called to live as pilgrims in this world. I want to point out three or four things about living as a pilgrim. The first one is this. To live as pilgrims, it's a mindset. It's a, it's a worldview. It's a change in the way that we think. Now, this has got to be important to Peter. We are only halfway through the second chapter. And this is the third time that Peter has used these terms to call us out. In 1 Peter 1.1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. In 1 Peter 1.17, he said this, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And then, of course, today here in 2.11, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. You see, this is how he wants us to think of ourselves. We are aliens and strangers on an earth, which for now, by the way, is under the domination and the control of the evil one. We, we cannot forget this. The, the words that Peter uses here for stranger and alien and exile is referring to someone who's a, a temporary traveler, uh, someone who is a, a, a temporary alien or a temporary resident. You're in a foreign country. You're in a foreign place, but you're just there temporarily on your way back to your home country. You see, a person like that has a different mentality than somebody who lives there. For one thing, when you travel to another country, and, and those of you that are listening, some of you may have traveled to foreign countries. When you go into a foreign country, they have certain customs and they have certain standards that they adhere to. That's all they know. That's what they were brought up with. But see, you and I live according to the standards of God's Word, not the standards of our, of our culture. 
Pilgrims, as they're passing through, they don't get attached to the country they're, they're, they're going through. We may see some beautiful scenery, and we may stop and admire that scenery, but we don't decide to live there. If you stop at a nice hotel, uh, you don't start hanging pictures on the wall. I've always liked that analogy of a pilgrim uh, staying at a hotel. You don't put pictures up. You, you don't make yourself at home. You understand, I'm here for a, one night, maybe a few nights, but I'm eventually moving on. You see, that is the mindset of the pilgrim life. Our sense of identity is not derived from the world. It's derived from our relationship with God. We belong to Him. We don't belong to the world. We don't belong to America. I belong to Jesus Christ. I belong to God the Father, the Almighty Sovereign of the universe. My home is in heaven. This is temporary. Now, why do we belong to Him? Well, Peter's already told us in verses 9 and 10. Listen, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were now not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I am one of God's people. I learned to live from Him, not from TV, not from movies, not from fashion catalogs, not from classes at my school. I learned my values and my standards and the way to live. I learned it from Him and Him alone, and of course, His words. You see, we are alien because we are His people. Having that mindset helps us cultivate the, the weightiness and the importance of God in our life. And it keeps us from drifting with the world's ways and the world's culture. You see, you don't when you're living with a pilgrim mindset, you don't take for granted that just because the world does something, it's the best way. You don't assume that the wisdom of the world is necessarily the wisdom of God. Instead, you stop and you think. And you consult the wisdom of heaven. You consult the, the God's Word. You get your bearings, not from what the world says you should do, but you get your bearings from the Word of God. You don't just drift on the tides of culture. You steer your life by two things. Number one, what's good for the soul. And number two, what honors the king. The second thing I want to bring out about this pilgrim life is that to live as pilgrims, there is a war to be fought. You see, Peter's saying as sojourners, as strangers, as aliens, go do these things. You see, once you've got the mindset, now you're ready to wage the war. And the first thing I want you to notice about this war is it's fought first at the level of our desires and then at the level of our behavior. Another way, way to put that would be this. First it's fought at the level of what we feel. Then it's fought at the level of what we do. Let's go read those two verses together and notice the order. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions or the desires or the lusts of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Then, he says, once you've done that, you're able to keep your conduct among the Gentiles or the unbelievers honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So why would Peter do this? Why would he say, first, take care of the way you feel and the way you 
think, take care of the desires, then worry about the behavior. Here's why. Because conduct is not excellent or beautiful. It's not going to point people to the glory of God if it doesn't flow from right desires. Now you may say, well, how do I know that? Well, listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. In other words, it doesn't do us any good to clean up the outside, to show good deeds and good conduct on the outside without changing what's on the inside. You see, Jesus said that's hypocrisy, and that doesn't bring glory to God in, in the least. A couple other things that Peter points out. Number one, this is a war, not a battle. Okay, Every believer... I don't care if you're 15 years old or 55 years old or 85 years old. Every believer faces a lifelong war against these lusts, which, again, if you yield to them, it will take you captive and destroy your soul. It's a war. It's prolonged. It's battle after battle after battle after battle. And this battlefield is the mind. You see, these lusts wage war against the soul. But the battle is waged in the mind. First Peter 1, 13 and 14. By the way, this is, we've already covered this. If you want to go back to the podcast and see and, and, and hear the lesson on uh, chapter 1, you can do this. But in 1 Peter 1, 13 and 14, he says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You see, the battle is in the mind. All sin starts in the mind, and that's where it must be defeated. First Corinthians ten four through five. Paul says, "For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion, and we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ." What are these passions of the flesh? that he's talking about. Well, they include, of course, sexual desires, but it's much more than that. You see, they also include all kinds of self-seeking. Anything where I'm seeking the betterment of self, it could be directed in, in wealth, it could be greed, it could be power over somebody else, it could be some form of pleasure, but it's all about what do I want, what makes me feel good. Now see, unbelievers who are ignorant of God, they're ignorant of His Word, for them, it's all about self, right? You live for self. Everything they do is directed toward self, either to promote self or please self or protect self or some other thing. Now, here's the thing. Peter's talking to believers. That's the way unbelievers live. It's all about self. But yet... Peter says, he's talking to believers, I urge you as sojourners and, and exiles. See, what this tells us is that becoming a Christian does not stop the war. Becoming a Christian does not eradicate those, those temptations towards self-will and sin. Even walking with God for years does not eliminate the need to do battle. George Mueller, if you want to go Google him, uh, we won't go into his, his history, but let me just say, was an extremely godly man. But even as he went on up in years, he used to, uh, to pray this prayer. He'd say, Lord, don't let me become a wicked old man. 
Now, he had walked with God for years. Why would he pray that? Because he knew his heart. He knew the propensity of sin He in his heart never goes away. He knows that it's a constant battle against these passions. You know, we see this in the Bible. If you go back to the Bible and you look at some of the stories in the Bible, a lot of the great giants of the faith, men who, who we know, David and Noah and Hezekiah, men like that fell into sin years, had been walking with God for years. For example, Noah got drunk and, and was indecently exposed to his children after the flood. David, of course, fell into a man after God's own heart, fell into sin with Bathsheba. Elijah, after dealing with, uh, with, with, uh, uh Jezebel and Ahab for years, uh, he began to waver in his faith. And of course, Hezekiah, who was a godly king who brought great reforms to the kingdom, fell into the sin of pride as he became an older man. Now here's the point. As long as we live in this body, we've got to be vigilant. As, as long as we live in the body, we've got to fight against these passions, against these lusts, against this temptation to go our own way and against the will of God. We're in a war as long as we're in the flesh. John Owen in his famous book, The Mortification of Sin, said this, Do you mortify it? The word mortify means to kill. Do you kill it? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Seize not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. The third thing about the pilgrim life is this. To live as pilgrims, there is a walk to walk. Look at verse 12 again. Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That Some translations will say excellent. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, the word that's used there in the Greek for honorable or excellent, it means good in the sense of beautiful or attractive. In other words, our lives should be marked by good deeds, which others see as beautiful or attractive, even those in a godless culture. You see, those around us, even in a godless culture, should look at Christians and admit, even if they don't believe in Christ, even if they don't believe the Bible, they should basically be able to admit that we're good people. You see, even if we're not aware of it, unbelievers are watching our lives. They see how we react to things at work. They, they see how we treat our wives. They see how we treat our families. They see how we deal with problems. They, they see all that. And see, Peter is not so naive, by the way, to think that, hey, everybody out there is going to see how, how, what a good person you are and just automatically be converted to, to Jesus Christ. See, he understands that's not the way it works. Sometimes out of jealousy, sometimes out of guilt, sometimes out of insecurity, they will speak against you. They will slander you. You know, I don't think you understand or, or may not remember this, but the early church was often accused of cannibalism. Why? Because they would gather together to eat a man's flesh and drink his blood. They were accused of incest because husbands would call their wives sister and wives would call their husbands brother. They were called atheist. Why? Because they didn't believe in the, uh, the divinity of the Roman emperor. But see, Peter says as pilgrims, we are even in the face of all that, 
We are to maintain a lifestyle that's beautiful. We are to maintain a lifestyle that's attractive, even in the face of ugliness from those around us. And if we do that, he says, ultimately, it will result in glory to God, which, by the way, is the overall aim of every Christian life. Finally, Peter says this, to live as pilgrims, there is a day to remember. Let's read verse 12 one more time. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, this is a little hard to understand. What does Peter mean by they will glorify God on the day of visitation? Well, it has to mean one of two things. Some commentators will take it to mean that these pagans who slander you, who speak against you, who call you ugly names, that there's going to come a day where they will get saved. In other words, that's the day of their visitation. And they will get saved because of observing your good works. Now, there's no doubt that Peter understands that that can be true. That some, it may be a minority, but some people will be attracted to Christ and may even get saved because of your good works. And, and on that day, they will glorify God, not just for His amazing grace, but they'll glorify Him for the faithfulness of His people. Now, I don't think that's what Peter's saying. I don't interpret that phrase in that way because Peter doesn't make it clear in that 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 they will get saved. In fact, if you go on and keep reading and you'll come to chapter 4, Peter's pretty clear that many of the pagans are going to face God's judgment. So the idea is they're not, not every one of them, some of them may, but not every one of them is going to get saved and glorify God and, and praise Him for the faithfulness of His people. You see, in context, I think Peter is saying that there's going to come a day where God will vindicate not only Himself, but God will vindicate every single Christian And that day, of course, is the day of judgment. So the question is, okay, well, how will pagans glorify God on that day? Well, you see, there's going to come a day where every one of us, believers and unbelievers, and those unbelievers are going to stand before God, and every excuse that they have for their rebellion, for their unbelief, it'll just be knocked out from under them. You see, the fact is, God not only gave them His Word, He gave them living witnesses. They'll stand there before God and they'll remember their neighbor. They'll remember their brother. They'll remember that godly mother. They'll they'll remember that co-worker who witnessed to them. They'll remember that. And they'll say, "I, I was told, I was told, I knew it, I knew it, I should have done something. You see, on that day, God will be vindicated. His people will be vindicated. And the once defiant knees of those proud pagans will bow to Jesus Christ. And that once proud tongue that that uttered slanders against Him and His people, they will confess, as Paul says in Philippians, that Jesus Christ is Lord, here it goes, to the glory of God the Father. You see, even on that day, they will confess, I was wrong and you were right, to the glory of God the Father. You see, for us as believers, here's the point. As pilgrims, we need to keep that great day 
of visitation in view. We need to live our lives on this earth knowing that one day everybody is going to stand before God either for commendation or condemnation. We should constantly seek to live with that day in view. Constantly seek to live so that we will hear the sweetest words that a human being can ever hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let me tell you, it is a radical way of life. You will be different from those around you. You're going to pursue God and all that He has for you instead of living for self-fulfillment and pleasure and the things of this world. But you see, here's the thing. In the end, the pilgrim life really is the only way. Because Jesus said it's only in losing your life that you will truly find it. I want to close with a scripture from the Apostle Paul, Philippians 3, 12-20. I won't read all the verses, but I want to read a few. He said this, Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. For many, he goes on to say, of whom I have often told you and now even tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ with their minds set on earthly things. But notice what he says, but not us. But not us. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as always, I thank you for your word. What, a, what an incredible word it is. God, help each one of us to walk through this life as pilgrims, to keep the mindset of a, of a traveler that's just staying in a hotel for a few days, that on their way home for eternity. God, that will change everything. Help us to fight these fleshly desires, these passions of the flesh, because there are bigger things at stake. Help us to, to walk out the conduct, beautiful, attractive conduct, because there are bigger issues at stake. And God, help, in each, every, every, help each and every one of us to hear those beautiful words that we all want to hear with everything that's in us. Well done, good and faithful servant. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.